At Kroger, we want our fresh produce to meet your expectations, which is why we're dedicated to doing up to a 27-point inspection on our fruits and veggies, checking for things like scarring. In fact, only the best produce, like zesty oranges and crisp carrots, reach our shelves. Because when it comes to fresh, our higher standards mean fresher produce. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today and become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to say The Great Unsolved, when it asks you, how did you hear about Podco? Welcome back to The Great Unsolved. I'm your host, Alexis. This week, I actually did a video podcast as well. This audio one will probably be out a little before the video one, as it's easier for me to edit audio. So you'll be able to find that at our YouTube, which will be linked in the description of this episode. People have been telling me I should start doing the video ones, so I'm going to start trying to do the video ones as I do the podcast. This week I'm recording the audio separately than the video and that audio just because it works better for me and I'm getting a better quality this way because I'm not at home right now. So the audio for the video is a little worse than this audio is going to be. Anyways, this week we're going into the case of Joan Risch, so let's just jump right in. Joan Risch was originally born Joan Bard in 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. Around the age of nine, Joan's parents died. The family home caught fire and neither of the parents made it out. It was said this was under pretty suspicious circumstances, but it's kind of hard to find anything about it online, so I'm not exactly sure what kind of suspicious circumstances there were. For anyone, though, this would be a very traumatic experience and it could shape their life, but we'll go over that more in the theory section. After this occurred, she went to live with her aunt and uncle and took their last name since they legally adopted her at this point. Not long after she was legally adopted, she came out and said she had been sexually abused as a younger child. It's unclear who was abusing her, But some people speculate because she felt comfortable coming out about this after her parents died, it could have been her parents' doing. But there is nothing to confirm that, so take that with a grain of salt. Joan excelled in school as she was said to be very intelligent, and she went off to college and got a bachelor's degree in English literature. She 
absolutely loved reading and loved books, so it fit perfectly. After college, she got a job at a publishing company in New York, and this is where she met her husband, Martin Risch. He was an executive at the company, and they met at work and just hit it off. They ended up getting married in 1956. Once they got married, it was decided that Joan was going to leave work so that they could start a family and she could be a stay-at-home mom. A lot of people speculate that Joan was not happy about this. She had a successful career before she got married, and maybe she wasn't happy that she had to quit and be a stay-at-home mom. People point to this as a reason she could have staged her disappearance. But from all accounts of people who knew her, Joan was a great mother and she loved being a mother, so it doesn't seem very likely. By all accounts, Joan was a very happy person. Those of her neighbors that had met her by the time of her disappearance stated she was very friendly but still reserved. Those who knew her a little better said she was extremely intelligent, she loved nature, and she loved reading. Her doctor, whom she saw just a little bit before her disappearance, stated that Joan was in great physical and mental health, so nothing seemed off and there was no reason to believe she would have a mental break or any illness at that point. On the other hand of the relationship was Martin, and he wasn't nearly as friendly as Joan was. At work, he was 100% work. Most of his coworkers didn't even know he had a wife, let alone anything about her. The neighbors who did meet him, which were not many, stated he was very cold and reserved. But this could have just been his personality. He could have been more secluded. I know I am definitely a somewhat cold and reserved person until you know me for a while, and then I open up. So maybe he was just like that. It doesn't really give us any reason to speculate that he and Joan's marriage was not happy because by all accounts, it was very happy. They had two children together. Lillian came first and about a year after, David came. I believe Lillian was right around four when Joan went missing and David was a little over two years old. After having these two children, they moved to Lincoln, Massachusetts. Once again, at this time, they had no real issues that anyone knew about. So a little bit about Lincoln, Massachusetts at this time. I found it was a very quiet and small community. It was a very wealthy community, and it was full of adultery at this time. But that'll tie into a theory later as well, or a few theories. October 24th of 1961 is the day that this family's life would change forever. In the early morning hours, Martin did have to leave for a work trip, which he did frequently as he worked as an executive at another publishing company at this time. It wasn't anything out of the norm for the family. Joan was used to it, and Martin said everything looked okay when he left that morning. A little while later, Joan got up with the children and made them breakfast, after which she brought David to the neighbors to be watched by them while she took Lillian to a dentist appointment. During this time, both of the milk and paper were delivered, but both of these delivery men later stated that everything seemed normal at the home. Around 11.15 a.m., Joan and Lillian returned home and picked up David from the neighbor's house. 
This is when a dry cleaning truck came to pick up clothes from their home and still nothing seemed amiss at this time. After feeding the children lunch, Joan laid David down for his daily afternoon nap. Sometime between 1 p.m. and 1.55 p.m., Joan's neighbor, Barbara Barker, the one who had previously watched David that day, brought her son over to play with Lillian. The time of this is not really certain, which is why I say there's like a 55-minute window of when it happened. We do know by 1.55, they were back at Barbara's house because Joan had dropped off the two children there. She told the children she would be back in about 20 minutes. However, 20 minutes later, at around 2.15 p.m., Barbara saw Joan walking from her car to her garage in a long trench coat. Originally, the story was that Joan was carrying something red in outstretched arms, but later accounts from Barbara dispute this. Barbara stated later that Joan was actually running around outside of her house in a dazed state, but was not carrying anything red. This was the last confirmed sighting of Joan before she disappeared. Around 3.25 p.m., another neighbor saw a dirty blue sedan in the Risha's driveway. They did not recognize it as anyone in the neighborhoods or being anyone that they knew. Other neighbors also confirmed the sighting and remembered seeing it leave, but it is unknown what exact time it left. Later during the investigation, the milkman stated that he had seen this car in the Rish's driveway five days earlier as well. By 3.40 p.m., the dark blue sedan was gone because Barbara dropped Lillian off at her home so that she could take her own children shopping. When they returned a while later, Lillian ran up to her and said, quote, Mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered with red paint, end quote. Barbara obviously was concerned by this and thought it was odd, so she went to the Rish home. When she walked in, she discovered it was not red paint, but blood smeared all over the kitchen, and it looked like a really frantic crime scene inside. There were paper towels still in the blood that was on the floor, which shown someone had attempted to clean it up, but gave up pretty quickly. There was also blood in the holes of the phone, and the phone was off the hook, and thrown in the garbage can. Next to the phone, the phone book was open to the emergency numbers page. This would speculate that Joan or someone else was trying to call for help, but never got the chance to. Almost all of the blood was in the kitchen, on the walls, and floors, and counters, but there was a trail leading up the stairs into David's room, as well as the master bedroom. David was unharmed, just laying in his crib when he was found. There was also a trail that led from the kitchen to Joan's car's trunk, and there was a coat hanger sitting on top of the car. Later, it was determined that this blood was Joan's blood type, but there wasn't enough to have killed her. It was actually stated that this was not that much blood, although it looked like a lot. There were three fingerprints and a palm print found in blood on the kitchen wall that did not match Joan or anyone else that they tested. And this is kind of where the case goes cold with evidence. There were some proposed sightings of Joan that day, but they were on Route 21, which was actually a few miles away from Joan's house. Someone on Reddit was talking about the area and stated it's really not walking distance from the Rish home, 
to Route 128. So we can either speculate that someone drove her there and then let her off on the side of the road, or this was another woman. Either way, there were reports of a woman who was hunched over clutching her stomach with blood coming down her legs walking on the side of the road. Not sure why no one stopped to help her out or what happened, but this is an unconfirmed sighting of Joan that day. Years after the investigation, it was found out that Joan had been checking out tons of books on disappearances, both staged and unstaged. She checked out at least 25 of these books over the summer, which caused some people to speculate. Most significantly, she checked out the book Into Thin Air, which was a book about a disappearance that only left blood and a towel at the crime scene, much like Joan's crime scene. We'll get more into that theory in a little bit, but let's talk about some of the newspaper articles around the time of her disappearance. In one, dated only five days after she went missing, the police said they believed Joan was stalked by her attacker for several days. They believe she was surprised by him in the driveway and was struck down there rather than in the house like previously thought. The neighbor near her home said she heard the garage door open and close multiple times around 3 p.m., which was the time Joan went missing, but this neighbor saw no one. And at the time of this article, the police did not believe she was suffering from amnesia. Right around the same time, the police announced that they were looking for two window washers to question because they were thought to be in that area that day, and they were even thought to have been hired by Joan. But I never found anything stating that they came forward, so I think that was a dead end. A year after Joan went missing, her husband, Martin, stated that he believed she was still alive and that she was living somewhere with amnesia. In 1996, the last living investigator from the original case also stated that he believed she was still alive. So from the investigator saying this, I'm kind of believing that there was more evidence they weren't giving out to the community that pushed the idea that she was still alive somewhere, whether her disappearance was staged or unstaged. In March of 1964, an author named Leo Ognall came out with a theory of his own. Leo was actually an author of over 50 thriller novels, some of which Joan read and liked. His theory was that Joan was alive, living in between New York and Boston. He stated that she probably lives alone and keeps a very low profile. She really wanted to see her kids, but she did not want to be noticed. His theory stated that she had a terrible secret. Now, he is a fictional author, so this could have just been a fictional idea. I don't know if he had anything to back it up, but that was his theory, and I wanted to mention it. So now let's move into discussing all the theories as a whole. As I talked about before, Joan was found to be checking out tons of true crime books the month before she disappeared. This has caused many people to believe she was researching the perfect plan for a voluntary disappearance. There was no internet back then, obviously, so this was the best way to learn how to do something, and if she wanted to stage a disappearance, she checked out the right books to do that. 
However, her husband Martin states that she simply liked these books. She loved thrillers and true crime, and I think we can all relate to that as well, because if someone looked at my search history or my library at home, I would seem incredibly suspicious. So I don't really want to go off of that. I think she was just interested in true crime before it was a wide-held thing. Another theory I would like to talk about is the botched abortion theory. I found this one on a subreddit called The Bizarre 1961 Disappearance of Joan Risch. This theory was presented by someone with the username AFDC92. Quote, My best guess is that she had a doctor come over to perform an abortion and it went wrong and she started bleeding and there was panic and confusion. She tried to call the emergency numbers, they got into a struggle, and he stopped her, ripped the phone off the wall, and threw it away. Maybe he took her somewhere else until she stopped bleeding, but she died of her wounds and her body was hidden so that he wouldn't be charged with murder and performing illegal abortions. Or maybe she wandered off and went to find help, but in her pain and confusion she accidentally wandered into the construction zone, died, and was accidentally buried although in this case, you would expect more of a blood trail. I'm inclined to think the woman seen on the road was another red herring and was unrelated to Joan's case, but I could also be wrong about that." End quote. So the construction zone is a part of multiple theories, and there was a lot of construction on Route 128 as well as another road at that time, and people speculate that if she did wander off in a confused state, she fell in one of the pits around there and was buried without anyone noticing. When I first read this theory, it really stuck with me as a great one because I see it as a really plausible thing back in 1961 when abortions were either not legal or extremely hard to get. Maybe this unwanted child could have come from an affair and she thought she needed this abortion. As I stated earlier, adultery was running rampant in Lincoln, Massachusetts at this time, and those who knew Joan said they had secondhand knowledge of her having an affair at this time as well. I think that with the detail of the phone in the trash and the coat hanger on the car, these could definitely point towards a botched abortion. If a doctor came to do an abortion and it went wrong, they couldn't have Joan calling for help, so it would most likely end this way. And this could explain the blood everywhere as being a struggle between the doctor and Joan. Going along with the idea of her having an affair is the possibility of a lover's quarrel, which surprisingly most people lean towards in this case. I didn't really find any evidence of this, but a lot of people in the area at that time and a lot of people in general theorize that this is what happened. She could have threatened to tell her husband or tell the man's wife, or they could have just gotten in an argument and he snapped and killed her. This could explain the unknown car seen that day and why it was at the house a few days earlier as well, but there's just really not a lot of evidence to back this up. Robin Warder, the host of Trail Went Cold, talked about this theory on a Reddit post as well. Quote, if you visit Joan Risch's Wikipedia page, you'll find a PDF containing original documents from the case. 
which were assembled together by a group called New England's Untold Stories. Curiously, the PDF file outlines a potential scenario where Joan was murdered by an intruder inside her home and follows this up with maps of land which were owned by Barbara Barker and her husband, William, in the nearby town of Lexington. It lists the location as Joan's suspected burial site and seems to infer that William Barker was her killer, but provides no context or explanation for this, and you will not find William Barker's name in any articles or official documentation about the case. This PDF is not available on the Wikipedia page anymore, sadly, but I think I remember seeing it a while ago. And just the fact that it says Joan's suspected burial site makes it very sketchy. However, there really is no evidence to back it up. So in order to go into this theory more and believe in it more, I would need more evidence. However, people have stated that Barbara Barker was really the only one to give a timeline, and she was really the only one to have confirmed sightings of Joan that day. But she was never really, like, questioned. It was never questioned if she was telling the truth or not. If her husband had done something, she had a really good reason to lie, and she had the perfect setup for it since there were no other confirmed sightings, and there were no other people to give a timeline of the day. Lastly, I would like to revisit the idea of her traumatic childhood. I haven't exactly seen this theory online, but I was thinking about it because I've been looking into the Elisa Lamb case, which, by the way, she was not murdered. It was just a psychotic break. It is pretty simple. Anyways, it made me think about this case, and although there isn't much evidence of it, maybe Joan's childhood caught up with her and she had some kind of mental break at this point and she hurt herself and wandered off it's possible not likely but it's very possible because it does happen personally i think if she was alive all those years someone definitely would have found her or she would have come back because it's hard to disappear for that long if you're alive so sadly i think that means that she has not been alive all these years and people are just wildly speculating. But, you know, she could have been alive all these years. I have no real idea. That brings us to the end of this case, though. I would love to hear you guys' thoughts, because this is just a very confusing case, as most of the ones we discuss are. But this one just really has, like, no evidence. So I would love to hear your theories on it. If you don't already, follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved. Follow us on Instagram at Great Unsolved Pod. We have a Facebook group, a Facebook page. We have a Patreon, a YouTube. All of that will be linked in the description, so you can find us on all those sites. Our next episode is going to be the Delphi Murders, and that one will probably be up either later this week or early next week. Stay safe and have a great day night.
wireless headphones. That'll be $200. I'll use my Capital One Quicksilver card. Now that's a hit. You used the Capital One Quicksilver card, which makes you the hero of every purchase. With Quicksilver, you earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere. I wanted running music, but unlimited 1.5% cash back is pretty heroic. Good instincts. Every hero needs a theme song. The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. A good time starts with a great wardrobe. Next stop, JCPenney. Family get-togethers to fancy occasions, wedding season too. We do it all in style. Dresses, suiting, and plenty of color to play with. Get fixed up with brands like Liz Claiborne, Worthington, Stafford, and Jay Farrar. Oh, and thereabouts for kids. Super cute and extra affordable. Check out the latest in-store. And we're never short on options at jcp.com. All dressed up, everywhere to go. JCPenney.